What's up, everybody? This is episode 300. We're going to be doing a little giveaway. You guys stay to the end of this. But where we have been in the past, what, we started this podcast in 2016. And back then, I was still buying little single family homes. Obviously, you know, became an accredited investor and kind of left that world behind. I think investing in large multifamily apartments or other syndications where you're a passive investor is the way to go because you know, you're tailoring your ordinary income to passive income. You're getting a lot of passive activity losses with cost segregations, bonus depreciation, pushing forward the cans down the road, leaving a world behind of 1031 exchanges, which I think are obsolete. Unless, of course, you're having a gain of more than a few million dollars of capital gain depreciation recapture. Um, if it's all the garbled gibberish to you, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash tax. My little tax notes there, some of my old tax uh, returns, a lot of good stuff there. Uh, we started the Huido Pipeline Club thus far, brought in over $140 million from folks like yourself. A billion dollars of assets under ownership. A lot of people getting started today are still under $100, $250 million. We're well over a billion dollars at this point, 7,800 units or so. And I just realized that these large crowdfunding websites, which spend a lot of money or venture capital back so they can you know, pay for customer um, acquisition. And we've raised like half of the amount that these large groups have been lowly owe me from 300 podcasts ago it goes to show if you can start something and you chip away at it i can grow to something big especially when the mission is to you the high-paid working professional out of the day job and it's finally taken me 300 episodes to really get this formula down but it's a simple one two three step program first invest in deals where you're uh, going into value add so you can get the passive activity losses and then you can play these tax games that the wealthy do and thirdly infinite banking and i always say thirdly because some of you guys have lower net worths out there or geek out on infinite banking or even if you're above one to two million dollars net worth a lot of you guys will geek out on that and spend too much time and we have the free infinite banking e-course if you guys want to check that out at simplepassivecashflow.com banking you guys can get free access that takes a couple two or three hours to learn all about infinite banking as opposed to just listening to a bunch of podcasts and hearing the marketing pitch from the life insurance guy learn about the pros and cons that's been my thought process from the beginning there's so much noise out there ira so direct iras solo 401k all these things but when you keep things simple and it's geared towards the high paid working professional. Things are very simple. Now, along the road, right, we teach you guys that paying down your house, paying down your debt, the debt's the best part about this stuff. May not be the right decision to buy your primary residence. To me, in my opinion, some people will call me crazy for this. I don't think you should buy your primary residence until your net worth is two to three times that of the house. Therefore, if you're in your 30s or 40s, buying that $600,000 house. I don't think you should be buying a house until your net worth is like a million, half, $2 million net worth, uh, which I know it ain't if you're buying a $600,000 house. Now, maybe I'm just getting old, 36 today, going on 37. And I feel part of this was to give back. So on today's podcast, you're going to be hearing a coaching call for a program that I used to do that we don't do anymore, which is called the incubator. The incubator was meant for lower net worth folks under quarter million, half a million dollars to go buy their first single family home remote turnkey rental. That is how I got started back in 2009. I bought a bunch of rentals in Seattle. 
And then I went out of state for cash flow. I bought 11 of those rental properties, realized they were a total pain in the butt to, to manage and all your returns go away. It looks great on paper, but all the returns go away and the, the headaches magnify themselves when tenants move out. You got big CapEx tidal wave. If you're out there having a couple rental properties or even eight plus rental properties, at some point that CapEx is going to get you and you're going to have an eviction here or there. And a, a small fraction of those evictions is going to end up into a five twenty thousand dollar repair bill. You're, you're wondering why, like, why are we doing this again? Don't take those performers from those turnkey guys. They're just trying to sell you stuff, guys. But anyway, how do you get educate yourself? We did this incubator. We have the remote investor e course, and we have the incubator. So for the people who are listening to this, you're going to get a sample of this at the end. But if you want to email us um, at team at simple passive cash flow. Subject line 300, we'll hook you up with it. But you got to be part of the investor club. Uh, to do that, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club and um, join our database right there. That's how you get all the cool insider stuff. And part of the bonus for this episode 300, put that in the subject line. We'll hook you up with that because we're moving off of buying little rental properties and moving more to the credit investor stuff, which our curriculum and e-course there is that syndication e-course for passive LP partners. How do you do your best due diligence? Whereas the incubator and remote investor e-course is more like what's in the black box, right? How do you go buy a remote rental, get source your property manager, get a lender, do all this pain in the butt stuff, which I feel is the foundation. So not to alienate the accredited investors who are like, yeah, screw that stuff. And I would probably agree. That's no way to build less lasting legacy wealth when your net worth goes over a million dollars, or you're making more than $100,000, $150,000 a year. Buying little rental properties is a waste of time, but it's a great place to start. So for some of you accredited investors, I think it's a great idea to go buy your kids a little rental property. Let them mess it up. Let them learn. That's the way you learn. I think if we have some investors that will bring their kids into some syndication deals. I feel syndication deals make you dumb really fast. It's a great way to live a nice passive investor, simple passive cash flow lifestyle. But if you're trying to pass off the wealth, which is really the focus of a lot of us who found financial freedom and found it in such a way where, you know, in five to 10 years, if you're doing it the right way, stop doing all the 401k nonsense, stop paying down your debt in your house. You can get to financial freedom in under a decade, some even less than five years, if your net worth is already $1.52 million net worth. So you focus on what's the next generation succession planning. To me, my kids aren't this old. But the best way is to have them own a little rental property. Now, at the last mastermind retreat, I joked around with a lot of people who were two or three million dollars net worth. Even buying a little rental property for them is a complete waste of time. Yes, you want the kids to learn about this type of stuff, but maybe you just lie to them and you buy them a fake rental property and, and you ask them, hey, Junior, the refrigerator broke. What do you want to do? You want to fix it or your tenant might move out? And people joked and laughed that, yeah, it'll be easy to make this stuff. I'll just look at the stuff from my property manager, all the emails, all the garbage and BS that came from there, all the drama that happened. And then the funny joke at the end, when the kid gets 16 or 21, you reveal that, hey, man, I just made it all up, but you learned something about this. But this is what the incubator. So if you're already in the club, and especially if you're an investor with us currently, we definitely want to hook you up with the incubator concept, which really doesn't help you. It doesn't pertain anything to a passive investor, even though there is a little bit of a carryover, but we want your kids to go through it, right? We're big on education for the next generation because who cares if you have 
five, six million dollars net worth. You put it all into infinite banking and the kids take it over. We all know it's going to happen. They're just going to do cocaine. I, I forget what the verbiage somebody's, I think it's a Warren Buffett thing, but you want to give them enough money to be comfortable, but not enough to do nothing. I might be butchering that quote a little bit. But you'll get a sense of what this incubator content is, again, for the lower network guys getting started in today's podcast um, with Marianne. It's going to help me um, ask the questions. This is probably like 5% of the whole incubator course. It's like about 20 hours, but that's the free gift. And that's the mission behind Simple Passive Cashflow, right? Myself, working as an engineer, there's not a day that goes by that I'm not super grateful. Starting this podcast, which allowed me to start the family office upon a mastermind, which kind of replaced my W-2 engineering salary for me to do something that I enjoyed. And I want to continue to grow that group in the future. If you guys are a million, $2 million plus, and you get it, you want to invest in deals, but you need that network around you. You can't go to the local real estate club. You can't go to all this online free garbage stuff because there's just a bunch of freeloaders there and marketers and sharks out there. I created the family office upon a mastermind. Now almost a hundred members actually. Learn more, simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey or send a team at simplepassivecashflow.com an email. Um, we'll get somebody on our staff to tell you what it's all about. But that's where we're heading off into the future. Deals and I like this consulting route, right? It, to me, it, there's no better way of like impacting people. And for me, I don't really like to help the masses. I like to help people that I know. That's just the way that I felt to give back. I like to know the people who I'm helping and it's a smaller community there. Um, again, go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash journey. The incubator is up for grabs for a very limited time. Email subject line 300. That's the secret code for the team to hook you up with it. But you got to be part of the club. Simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And Thank you for listening to 300 of the episodes. If there's any feedback or anything you guys want to see in the future, please let us know. Thank you for allowing me to quit my day job. If not, I'd probably be out there waking up at 6 a.m. for some boring job briefing that I don't want to go and regurgitating the company jargon of safety first or safety second, whatever it is. But again, thank you, everybody. Here's to another 100 episodes. And I'm looking forward to meeting as many as you in person as we open up in 2022 and beyond. This is a story about a dude named Lane. He moved to the mainland and bought one place to stay. And then one day he went and tried to rent them out. And then he became one real investor man. Hello, incubator students. And so we have old student Marianne here who went through the incubator course. So Please go through all the past videos before you watch this video, because this is meant to round out all the remaining questions and fill the gaps. But uh, thanks for jumping on, Marianne. Hopefully this discussion kind of helps more insight, and hopefully I can answer all these questions. Sure. Maybe I didn't like understand or needed just some clarification. Yeah, and that's why we do this, right, in this format, as opposed to me writing down the answers, and I'm a horrible typer. I was never good in English. So it's always better to talk through the answers because a lot of these are more answers in the gray and stuff black. So first one here, homeowner association fees for rental property, is this charged back to the tenant or can it be tax deductible if it's a short-term rental? So let's just take out the fact that we're talking about short-term or long-term. I don't think it matters either way. 
but it's two things here. So the homeowner, homeowner association fees, for the most part, you can do it either way. It's just some people decide that they want to charge the tenant. And I think some of us who've lived in apartments or houses or in college, it was all over the place. Very similar. But most times the tenant is just in charge for one thing, especially in B and C class stuff, because dude, you don't want to give these guys responsibility to do another thing. And ultimately you're the one holding the bag or interest fees racking up. So if you got to make it easier for them. So they just pay one thing, which means they're typically reimbursing you for utilities or these homeowner association fees. Are you a non-accredited investor looking for opportunities to invest passively? How about a newer investor looking to get a bit of a track record and confidence from your skeptic spouse? And could you use the reinforcement of monthly checks paid like clockwork? The American Homeowner Preservation Fund, or AHP, is looking to bring new investors with them. I've been investing with them since 2016, and originally, I used it as a means to pay for my regular expenses. I started with $60,000 as my initial investment, and that paid for my car payment completely for me. AHP collaborates with existing homeowners to keep them in their homes by restructuring or selling the debts, unlike their competitors that just kick their homeowners out on the streets. It's a way to make great returns while feeling good about making a social impact. After investing myself in the fund, it was awesome when owner George Newberry saw the impact our simple passive cash flow monthly crew was making approach me to become a spokesperson of the company. Invest as little as $100 by going to ahptitle.com. And if you want the free burn zone book, please claim it at simplepassivecashflow.com slash AHP. And if you haven't done yet, join our private investor club for more insider access. Go to simplepassivecashflow.com slash club. And then the other question, is a tax deductible? Yeah, sure it is necessary and ordinary for your business. I guess I'll let you ask, ask the questions here. So actually, that was for number one. So number two, in the section within the turnkey uh, course on what markets do I invest in? Like in the course material, how often is the top markets updated? Is it annually because it's due to the MSA data? They're not really updated. I just cut and paste this thing right here. And it's supposed to be you know, just guidelines. These are the types of markets. You'll probably never see California, New York, Boston, Hawaii, Seattle on here. All right. Cool. So these are all secondary and tertiary markets. If you're looking for the top 10, this is the clickbait type of stuff that maybe I would be the one thing I would be on the lookout for what markets to invest in. The one thing I would caution people is that to stay away from those very small markets like a Boise, right? He's making a lot of headlines now, but it's only a quarter million populations. It's under that. I wouldn't invest in anything less than half a million or certainly 300, 400,000 population or less. Okay. Oh. When you're talking those bigger, medium size, large size cities, MSAs, now like there's not really much for the most part. That's exactly why you pick investing in a Phoenix or a Houston because they're major markets. They don't really around too much. I would group B and C question together. Can we correlate like short-term or vacation rental kind of market with regular turnkey market? So for instance, like Jacksonville or Tampa, Florida and Arizona, would you say those are, I guess, safer markets because you could do either ways, vacation or turnkey? To me, like the short-term rentals is an entirely different 
business. Mm-hmm. It's a very, and I say that it's a still like people are living in your box, right? So from that respect, I think that's where you can say it's the same. But the way I look at it, it's very different because the clientele that you serve is very different. Term rentals is more discretionary. It's people on vacation. Just something like, just to prove my point, like very similarly, like mobile home parks is for like class D, class C type of tenants. But then you have RV parks, same structure, but two very different clientele. RV parks are more for the, the families that like to travel and they like to go to the the parks and on vacation, like two very different clientels. I just don't even like to intermingle and things like okay. that. I, I think you got a good idea there, right? You're like, oh, well, if Jacksonville is a place where it's traditionally been a great secondary market with a lot of long-term rental, strong long-term rental market, and people happen to travel up the panhandle, up to Florida to go on vacation because they can't afford to go to Disneyland or go to international travel. And that's where those types of short-term rentals come in. Right. But I guess I was just thinking more of exit strategy. If, if I need any in future, would it be an easier exit? But that was my thought. Oh, okay. Point. Yeah. But the problem is, like if you're buying a class B house, it's a piece of crap in terms of short-term rental vacationer standards. So you're looking to get a long-term rental and then sell it retail to some unsophisticated Airbnb owner. Is that kind of the idea? If we have to exit, so for instance, like the pandemic like turned different, or at least at the beginning of the pandemic, we were unsure. And this was the, the other way around, like short-term people are looking at long-term, or maybe, I don't know, with maybe in future it's long-term going to short-term, I don't know. But just if I had to exit a turnkey, I was thinking if having it somewhere that may be short-term interest too if that's safer yeah it's just your run, long-term rental your class b rental it ain't going to be in a place where people are going to be vacationing and i think a lot of you guys in the incubator it's great ideas but this is where you got to get in the ground and actually go travel and wants to go visit these properties because once you visit this stuff your shit that ain't got a good idea right it's not dangerous but nobody in their right mind would come and vacation there for a day or a week no way <laughs> it's just not gonna happen yeah i don't know if it's seattle right it's kind of like you, you traveled to seattle there's no way in hell you're gonna go and get a short-term rental in auburn or kent or renton no way <laughs> that's not right, gonna happen right. or where you're at in the world you're, you're not gonna go get an airbnb in baltimore it's the same thing okay. maybe those are bad examples or kind of extreme <laughs> but that's what i'm saying at, at the same time to your point we never knew what was going to happen in the pandemic. Like traditionally, or especially in Florida, a lot of the people, their Airbnb shut down. But around yeah. the summer times, those people were making a killing quietly with their short-term rentals because people couldn't go to Disney World. They wanted to get the heck out of their houses. And you know how Florida people are, right? They're anti-vax. So they want to get out there. The only place they could go was to a little Airbnb in Jacksonville or on the coast. Who knows? But I think separating the short-term, long-term, it's just two different clientels, two different asset classes. Got it. Thank you so much, Lean. Okay. I like how you're thinking. I like how you're (laughs) thinking too. I never know. Yeah, I was thinking more like airports and stuff too. But then again, how do we correlate the best real estate markets with the rise by sector? I guess as things expand out of California and Seattle, what cities are startups starting to lay down their roots? And 
are any of these new cities in the appreciation market or in those markets where we are we should look at for short-term rental or long-term so you're thinking like the tech market or any other things that are moving out of california or seattle right like where are these people going boise i don't know where else they're going analogy that people use that was like the bay area was like a pressure cooker and it just spilled over in probably 2010s it was spilling over into seattle bellevue kirkland and then in the last decade, also it spilled over to Salt Lake City, Phoenix. And then with the pandemic, with the remote working, where a lot of these tech companies said, you can go where the heck you guys want. Now it's spilled over to these other more tertiary markets like Boise. People are coming to Hawaii here because they don't, they, they have no need to go to an office anymore. So they're going all over the place. I'm not in tech, so I don't know. But the traditionalist inside of me still feels like these people need to be physically located in mm-hmm. a city hub. But every city is touting themselves as it has a little tech sector, Atlanta, even places like Birmingham, right? Like it's everywhere. Right. It's like the Delta variant. It's everywhere. Be careful. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Lean. I asked specifically about Texas because in question E, because my husband just moved to Texas this year, where would you recommend to re- to invest in Texas? And does it depend on year? Like in your copy and paste above, you, you mentioned that's pretty general. A year does not matter. Yeah, Texas is on fire. You see all the stats every single month of people moving from everywhere, especially California, pro-economy, more of a red state, except for Austin. Texas is, everything is new out there. And, and from a, just a traffic engineer standpoint, like you can build roads how you want. Everything's bigger in Texas. Traditionally, this is as far back as like the early 2000s. They call it the Texas Triangle. So that is Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, anywhere in the Texas Triangle is just blowing up. That said, that that has been the center for the last decade. And now in the year 2021, it's getting old, especially in Dallas. You have a lot of unsophisticated people just coming into there. Um, it's really hard to buy even class C assets. It used to be you could buy it for 40, 50 grand a unit. Now you're over 100 grand for some of that class C. Texas is overplayed and you're probably like five years to be the first settler. But that said, all the fundamentals are still strong and people are keep moving in. Rents are still going up. I guess that if I'm reading into your question, you're maybe not as hot in Dallas, but maybe people are starting to look in Fort Worth more, which is the sister city of Dallas. They're running off to Houston. Now, San Antonio was a little weak in the last handful of years, but now these things go up and down. But I don't think you can go wrong anywhere on like that work all the main interstates even going out to the panhandle okay thank you lane that helps moving on to the next section on deal analysis a is really just a comment on the deal analysis like excel on the analyzer i was wondering if we should include some of the assumptions by percent in some of the fields and then also like color code like conditional format so let's say if i put in certain numbers that don't work red comes up if it's like below the threshold that we should look at so, so maybe i could work on that for you lane if, if you want or i could just do it for myself yeah i think a lot of people out there they want to they go based on i want the spreadsheet to light up blue or different shades of but things change all the time right like when five years ago you'd be looking for properties at the 1.1 percent rent to value threshold in a certain submarket. Now, today, that same submarket, you might be lucky to find rental value ratios at 0.9%. 
So it's a constantly moving target. And if you've seen that chart that I show sometimes of like general cap rates coming down, it ain't getting better. It's just like you did the infinite banking thing and they always change those dang laws. The best yeah. time to do it was yesterday, guys. And this is why in the incubator group, like we always have people. I always tell people, I don't know what lights up the spreadsheet red or green. I say that facetiously because I'm like, go out and go analyze 20, 50, 100 properties. And you go tell me where the scatter chart tells you where the waterline is on this type of stuff. Okay. Cool. The next one is more just on organizing the Google Drive. I think I put here, should we put it as the suffix rather than the prefix? Because some of the files I was like, where do I see, where do I, how do I see the actual file? But that's fine. That was just my comment on organizing. Okay. Okay. What, like, what file are you trying to get access to? The Google Drive files. Yeah, but which one? Maybe I should email you directly because I put these questions a while back and I forget okay. the deal analysis. Sorry. Okay. I think, so I think all the, like the resources and files are just clumped in the share file. But if you go through the incubator course or the remote investor equal, they are, the links are there in the order of progression. Okay. So see, I caught you. You didn't go through the e-course. <laughs> I know. Like that's how I would do it. I'm just like you, right? I'm like, all right, well, let me just read stuff as I need it not go through the freaking order and then let me download this big resource and just go do the resource like you can work backwards that's how i would do it too but that's why you're having that problem okay thank you yeah that's yeah. that's a pretty typical of folks in our group right that's why you're doing what you're doing so does net you hold the same weight as cash on cash or, or roi is ny does it hold the same weight ny cash on cash I've never heard net yield talked about too much, but cash on cash is a very common one. So cash on cash is based on you know, how much money you have, like your down payment, and then how much ROI you're getting on it. NOI is how much money you're making, you're profiting. So income minus expenses, not including any of your debt server. Because some people, they won't use any debt, which is silly to me. Some people will use 70%, some people use 80%. So in terms of people like, comparing their investments, they throw all that stuff out the window and just compare the net operating income on a deal. But you as an investor, when you're looking at your portfolio, you have three or four properties. Something I suggest investors do every year is prune off the crappy one out of the bunch. So the way you're doing this is you're just comparing yourself. You're just in competition with yourself or your properties are competition against each other. So you want to figure out what your return on equity is. So part of that analysis is your cash and cash return. Okay, yes, I think that makes sense because I sometimes am emotional about stuff I buy. By looking at it through this analysis, this helps, quote-unquote, prune. So yeah, thanks. the resource for that is at simplepassivecashflow.com slash ROE. There's a spreadsheet in there where you put all your properties and then you put in like how much equity you dispose or deployable equity you have in there. So basically, you have how much money you're profiting you divide it by how much deployable equity and that's your return on equity. And then it compares all your properties. And for most people, they do this, especially the ones that have done it the traditional way where they try and pay off debt, which doesn't take advantage of all of the inflation that's happening now. You get killed by paying off your... Now you're like, oh shoot, I have this one 100% paid off even though I'm cash laying a lot. And it is might be a great rental on my portfolio. This is my dead weight right here this is what I should probably sell, refinance, do a key lock on first. And that's what it helps, helps you make that decision. Okay. Thank you, Lane. I think D was kind of related to C2. 
So cap rate, so, so let's talk about cap rate. I mean, should we only show, talk about cap rate when it's an all cash? Since it's the ratio of net operating income to property value. So if I bought a house at 70 and like the NOI is seven, that brings me to a clean cap of 10, right? Or no? So cap rate is typically used that in the commercial real estate or when you're mm -hmm. buying little rental properties, it really doesn't, people like to use it to sound cool, but it's really to me not the place for that type of usage of the word. In single family home, you mainly discuss in terms of cash on cash return or return on equity, which is more just in competition with your own self. But when you're trying to compare, right, elder investors like to compare each other's stuff. Ooh, I'm getting cash on cash return. That's how you typically talk in terms of things. When you find an investor and they're saying, oh, I was operating on a four cap, five cap, they usually, they're, it's like one of those people that they want to sound cool, but they really only look like a douche because their terms correctly and cap rates are mostly for commercial world because as i cut and paste this in here cap rates are severely overestimated in most cases especially by brokers sellers and syndicators and your guy who likes to brag about his one rental property being a seven or 15 cap i don't really pay much attention to the reason why is because typically what's going on are expenses are always left out or income is inflated and that's what dictates your cap so when you have bad data, you might as well just throw the dang thing out. So it's like a top of line calculation. Yeah. There's always manipulated and this can throw your cap plus or minus 2%, right? So an example is a broker will be like, oh, we got a, we got a fifth, 12 cap. First of all, when I see that stuff, I know I'm working with just a douchebag broker, right? Another one of these yo-yos. And I want to work with a broker that shows me numbers and actually not going to just try and trick me with ridiculous stuff with, oh, we're working on a seven cap, eight cap, right? And the reason why is because they're just manip they're just manipulating the either income or expenses. And one common way is maybe they don't show, maybe the property manager, the owner is doing the property management themselves. So they're saving several thousand dollars with property management. But when I take over the property, you take over the property, we're going to need it so that nine cap property goes down to a six, five cap property overnight. And that's why I throw the dang thing out. Because it all depends how the seller is manipulating their profit and loss statement. If that makes oh. sense. So it's, what do you want? What cap rate do you want to see? That's why, that's how brokers know that they have a sucker, a buyer. Like, oh, Marianne, what, what cap rate are you looking for? Eight and a half. All right, well, let me just change this number here. Like, you don't know the difference. All right, here's the eight cap. How do you like it? It's good. That's exactly what you wanted, right? When you're working with more institutional brokers, the larger deals where they don't jerk around, they sell things as they are. Yeah, you still have to be do your due diligence when you're playing a detective to get the cap rate. You have less and less of this nonsense. But with single family homes, anything under 60 units, this is going to be very common, and which is why I don't even look at the cap. Mind-blowing. Thanks, Lynn. Appreciate it. Case study, I have not submitted my case study yet because my husband and I are looking at like an investment in Houston or, or Tinkey in Houston. But the TK, I think Houston TK, they mentioned that they're out of inventory. So 
you're supposed to send the inventory list this month. Yeah, Sorry. which may or may not be good because they have so many clients and sucker investors. There's so many people now that after the start of the pandemic have rushed into buying turnkey rentals. That's one of the reasons why we paused on the whole incubator program because I've moved off to syndications and private placements. And like the turnkey world is always just always changing. People come in, they come out. The good ones, if they're smart, they go to more retail products products and they don't mess with cheapskate investors, which is hard, right? Like the people that people always talk about on the forums, those are the people just gouging people on prices because they built up a track record and sponsor group has happened. But I don't know, figure out what the property is worth that you're actually paying for, not the price that yeah. you're paying. Gonna use your deal analyzer for that. So thank you. But you gotta yeah. figure out what are what are like comparable sales, right? You gotta do that yeah. yourself. And unfortunately that's why I don't like residential real estate because the price is dictated in a comparable sales it has nothing to do with the number so when you're buying a duplex triplex quad it shouldn't go based on the numbers it should it's the price is dictated on comparable sales okay understood i was wondering in terms of the financing do you know if like for duplex turnkeys if, if we should even look at fha loan yeah because if he stays in one of the units can should we try to see if we could qualify for FHA. Yeah, you have to be owner-occupied. You have to be owner-occupied to get that stuff. I'm not super familiar with the FHA, and this is where you talk with your lender because the the rules kind of change. But my understanding is with the FHA stuff, you have to live there for sure. On the Fannie and Freddie loans, you don't have to be living there to be not owner-occupied. But you got to come with the full 20% down payment, and you're going to have to pay maybe a quarter point, half a point, higher than what you would have otherwise if it was owner occupied. But I don't know. If you guys are accredited investors, to me it's a freaking waste of time. What yeah. do you do? You do all this work, you do the inspection, you buy especially when you buy it over market price <laughs> because you're surrounded by a bunch of unsophisticated turnkey buyers that just listen to a bunch of podcasts and you're overpaying by 10, 20 grand plus. It all you're gonna have at the end of the day is you're gonna be underwater and you're going to be making what few hundred dollars a cash flow a month for younger people that's cool but if your net worth is half a million or your credit investor then in hawaii we call that boho it's not worth it it's pita okay thanks e- even what the you know i i and i think the allure is the fha oh we can get in with high and look what's the look at the roi the per cash on cash because my down payment is so low I'm making, I'm just making this up 30% on my money, 40% on my money just on cash because I only have $10,000 down. But how much are you really making at the end of the day for that level of effort? I don't know. And then I, especially for a credited investor, you're going to be living amongst your tenants. This is not cool for married people, in my opinion, but I'm not, this is a lifestyle thing. So don't listen to me. And if, if I was an accredited investor, I'd want to live in somewhere cool instead of just a turnkey rental with lvt flooring and like indestructible like countertops i'd rather living in a nice uh, luxury apartment i think same as my husband he likes apartment living too so yeah well we're, we'll look and see happens, yeah so. but I, I get it right like the fha is is, is that the that's the lure right you think you're coming with five percent down and the yeah. wheels in your head or ooh, that's yeah. great roi but is it really move the needle and at what point, especially as a credit investor, you start to realize, well, I'm going to get to financial freedom and very quickly in the next five years, if you're already a credit investor status, why am I doing silly things like 
moving in next to my tenants. For some of you guys deserve to start living it up already. Nobody ever tells you that. Everybody wants you to like, don't buy a latte, live under your means. Say, because that, I don't know. I think it's one of those things where if you had parents like mine, or you're probably the same, you were rewarded by being very frugal. Yeah. And I guess at work, if you do well, you get rewarded with more work. So yeah. How messed up is that, huh? Yeah. Anyways. Yeah, I guess B was along the same lines as what we already went through because Sophie is 10% down, not 5, but 10, but no PMI and uh, 30. So we were looking at that too. But yeah, yeah. We, we'll go through that. Yeah. See, I don't know all these companies. There's a, there's a bunch of these guys. They're, for the most part, I would they, they make it really easy to apply, which is nice. But I think you have to be careful to bait and switch, especially if it's not owner-occupied and they have to massage your debt-to-income ratios and your borrower profile. They These guys spend a bunch on ads and they get you guys to apply via their app. They're typically, I don't think they have as good pricing for the most part a lot of times. Interesting. Okay. I guess you're 2021 for all the listeners. What is the average rate for the 30-year for now? I don't know. I, I have no idea. Maybe for non-owner-occupied, maybe 4% to 6%. Okay. Yeah. What I would do is if you walk into any bank and you look at the really low rates for like owner occupied houses. And I think that, what is that? Three and a half percent right now. Yeah. That's never, nobody ever gets that. It's what it seems like. So it's that's more like four. So what I would do is go four plus a half a point because it's not owner occupied. So it'd be four and a half. Do you recommend using like HELOC or non-recourse asset-based loans to like funding? Why not? You need to figure out your level of risk that you want to take part in. If you would have asked me five, 10 years ago, if I felt comfortable with people getting HELOCs of leveraging on top of their leverage, using the HELOC for down payments of my properties, I felt I would have felt uncomfortable with that personally. But today, I guess I've been desensitized to it. And I'm like, if you're buying cash flowing assets, how bad can it be? Go ahead and do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But um, most more most people have just lazy equity nothing jack. So I'm like, get that working first before you start to get key locks and stuff like that going. Yes. The non-recourse asset-based loan, they sound cool and the lenders make great fees on this, which is why they always push this stuff, especially like the all-in-one loans or the portfolio yeah. loans. Yeah. But the fees suck on those and they're usually higher rates. You wanna you wanna exhaust your Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans first. All the time. And this is like where the lenders, they're not your friend. Make no mistake. They're not your friend. They're always going to like, if, as soon as they start to see your borrower profile become a little bit squirrely, they're going to look for the easy way out. And just like we talked about like tax professionals, right? They always want to do it the easy way. So once you, once they start to see Ooh, your debt to income ratios anywhere from 60 to 45, I don't know, I'm just making this up, but oh, Hey, Marianne, maybe you should do a non-recourse asset-based loan, a portfolio loan. Think for yourself. Understand the pros and cons of going down that. To me, if, if you have a clean borrower profile and you have a good debt-to-income ratio, use the Fannie Mae Freddie Mac loans. But for some of you guys out there who have California rentals and a lot of equity that mess up your debt-to-income ratio because it's not a good purchase and a not a good loan, then you pop, you might not qualify. You may have to go down this non-recourse asset-based loan. But then again, if you have several hundred thousand dollars of equity in your California rental, you shouldn't be investing in little rental properties. It's probably a credit. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I don't know. I, yeah, depends where you are. Depend- and like, 
the profile. So yeah, some options out there, but yeah, do your own analysis. Got it. Hard money. So say for instance, if you did use hard money, would you recommend paying off, paying it off quickly instead of refinancing because of all the fees? Why are you using hard. Why are you using hard money on these types of properties? Paint the scenario that you're doing this with. I don't know for I don't know for someone who may not qualify for a traditional. I don't know if anyone would use hard money, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Let me give one example, and then if you can think of another, let me know. So the, I, I would think the only reason why you're trying to use hard money to go after a deal, if you're buying that deal distressed and you need to close on it quickly, or maybe it is a turnkey and it's highly competitive environment, you've got to go in with a stronger offer, which I would say don't even buy the damn property in the first place. Everybody is heavy going off of it. You're buying it overpriced, period. Don't do it. It's not It's not like an LP it's like, oh, we're having a $50,000 position, but because everybody wants it, now it's $60,000. It doesn't happen in the world, but that would be the only reason why you'd want to use hard money. And this is, we get into the realm of the people doing that burst strategy, the buy, rent, rehab, refinance. If you're an accredited investor, to me, this is just child's play. Just don't waste your time doing this stuff unless you like to feel like you're making a lot of money and feel like you're important. That'd be the only reason why you do the hard money. But that's up to you, right? Like, how do you want to run your finances? Do you want to use cash? Or would you rather use a HELOC or use a hard money loan and keep the cash on the side? It's always having dry powder. It's up to you. Is there any circumstance you can think where you would have to use hard money to go after a deal? Like you want to go in heavy, right? Because all yeah. the books tell you, if you go in hard money, you can get a 5% discount, which doesn't happen. That was like 1998 or something like that. It was, it's not really... Real, especially when you're buying retail type of products like turnkeys. You're not going to get no discount with that. You're already buying it overpriced. Okay, good to know. Cash reserves. So, like, in case of vacancies, I don't know. Like, what? how much would you recommend, whether percentage or number, like, in order to handle the loan payments? Like, what kind of cash reserves should we have in our own, like, total portfolio in case of vacancies, if we're doing turnkey, this is totally up to your personality too. Some people believe the coronavirus is real. Some people don't, right? Like people, it's all based on where your personal head space is at. If you want the bank, whether you call them smart money or just conservative, too uber conservative, they typically want anywhere from three to six months of principal interest taxes and insurance. So on a little rental property where your mortgage, your guy is 500 bucks, they're wanting what, 1500, three grand. So we can use that as a starting point. How does that sound to you? Is that, are you, would you like more? What is your personal comfort level, I guess? I would say that plus times six. Okay. And this is where like, it's up to your personal comfort level. Like I would say in my experience, what's the worst that can happen? A tenant messes up your property and now you got to pay $20,000 to get the thing back online. There should be other places you should be able to take cash from to pay for some very low chance of something, but high impact thing like that. What's going to happen 80% of the time is maybe a tenant moves out and maybe your property goes vacant for a handful of months and you might have to fix something. So that might be, you got to pay your debt service for a few months. So 1500, maybe you got to pay, put in a thousand dollars of repairs. So two to $3,000 is you're going to be your hit in most cases. So I would tell people like, we'll have at least in dry powder. 
but then it also it also has uh, to do with your personal cash flow levels. Like we just had in our mastermind group a guy who makes eight or nets eight thousand dollars. He he puts that away every month. Old Henry and he and I'm like, dude, you're fine. Like you can have a vacancy every single month, several every month, and be fine. So he needs less dry powder around. And for a lot of people in our group, a lot of you guys are able to save two to three, four thousand dollars per month. So that should be, you're good. You can also keep some dry powder and like some IRAs, Roth IRAs, or I'm not saying you should have $3,000 times six, like how you're saying. I think that's a little ridiculous. And then as you get more properties, right? I think your level of dollar per property goes down because you're reaching more steady state. You're more diversified, right? So it's harder in the beginning. And when your net worth is lower, which, which sucks. That's what's hard about this whole wealth building thing. In the beginning, it's the hardest. But as your net worth grows, as you have more income, more cash flow from just your day job, and you have more properties, your level of insurance goes down. And just to use an extreme example, if you had larger companies, they self-insure to a point. Yeah, it's uh, psychological for me because I use Mint to track my net worth. So when it, it drops, the cash side drops, I'm like, oh, I wish it was up again. But yeah, yeah. and this is like every situation is different. And what I would say for you, you're more on the conservative side, but for every rental property, this is just me shooting from the hip. Don't do exactly what I'm saying because I just thought of it in a minute. But like maybe knowing your personality, maybe I would get a few thousand dollars per property of cash reserves, but be able to pull a little bit from elsewhere. If you're able to net three, four thousand dollars per month, you're good right there. And then the more properties you get, I would say you maybe $1,500 per property. You start to work your way down that way. Yep. Agree. Yeah. The topic of lending, should we, what kind of lenders should we use? Should we use those that are recommended by the provider or the turnkey provider or like on your preferred list? I don't know if we need to like try to scale to other states, if we should think about that even. Yeah. So the way the lending works is the lender... The lenders are a lot of the guys that we work with are licensed in multiple states, like life insurance, right? So the, the banking stuff that we do, the same guy gets licensed in multiple states. That's all it is. It, it's, and, it, and the loans that we're getting, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, for the most part, are federal programs. So it doesn't really matter what state you're in. So what I would say in terms of the lender, right, there's two parts of the lender. There's the broker, right? The sales guy, the guys who are telling you all the stuff that they can do. And you're trying to, that's why you work with referrals, right? Because these guys are not just a stupid salesman that tell you one thing, but then the underwriter in the back room tells them they can't do it. And now you're screwed at the end. So general rules of thumb is you don't go to a large bank because typically those people are, might be great at working with owner occupied stuff in the state that you live in. But this non-owner occupied stuff is a little different to them. And I would just not entrust those types of people to do it. I would look for people who do owner, non-owner occupied and remote rental property as their primary business. Okay. Reps, I guess if someone is like certified to become an inspector, would that come to its rep status? Do you know? Property inspector? Yeah. Give you a real estate agent. You can inspect properties for a gazillion hours a year, play real estate agent for a gazillion hours a year. But if you're not doing active participation in your personal portfolio, it doesn't count. I see. And this is where I'm a little fuzzy. And of course, none of this is financial advice or tax advice. 
go find you. Go find the CPA that's going to sign off on this stuff first. But of course, I always tell you guys, we'll get educated on this stuff and know the nuances so that you can go and play a little you know, intellectual jujitsu with your CPA so they just don't do it the easy way and tell you no. But to me, if you need to have some active participation in your portfolio. Now, if you're an inspector, really how much, you can't hit 750 hours inspecting your property. It's not going to happen. Man. Like, okay. So, no. But you need to say, but how can I? Interesting. Good question. So that's the difference between, yes, you're doing real estate activities, but has nothing to do with your portfolio, your passive portfolio that you're operating. All right. Insurance. Question on umbrella insurance. Currently, we plan not to have a car anymore. I was wondering if we should still get light umbrella. Neither of us are in high liability kind of professions. To me, umbrella is the first thing you get well before you get property insurance on your properties. But yeah, you get the umbrella before you get any LLCs. You start spending money on that type of stuff. Okay. The umbrella is the one that everybody thinks is you're driving in your car and you hit grandma, right? Yeah, if you, I mean, even if you don't have a car, I would still get it. It's so cheap, like probably a few hundred bucks. Just get it. Okay. Yeah, because it's supposed to cover, let's just say the insurance doesn't cut, jump in. Supposedly, the umbrella is supposed to be your next layer before you rely on all these entities. But mm-hmm. too often, entities and all these other exotic trusts are sold before this. Right? So you got this, this armor on, put this stuff on. It's like, this is the order where you put it in. Thank you. That helps a lot. And it's cheap. Just get it, right? Yeah. Operating the property. So do you think for the turnkeys, would we need to put like remote control thermostat or security systems and security cameras? Or that depends whether it's A, B, or C type of turnkey. Yeah. You're not going to put a Siri or Alexa thing in that property. Class C, they'll probably just steal it or something like that. It sounds cool, but it's just not the clientele. My style is like you hire good people and you rely on their expertise as consultants. And these are your property managers, you know, ask what they think about it. They're going to give you the best opinion because they're boots on the ground. They know the clientele, they know the area, but typically not in the type of long-term rentals that we're doing. Short-term rentals, probably, but that's a totally different business. I'm just saying this, but I don't want security cameras in there. Probably going to get sued or something like that for invasion of privacy or some nonsense like that. Okay. Exit strategy. If we can sell it back to the turnkey provider, or should we? You could. That'll buy it. That's an option. Most times they know that you're an unsophisticated buyer who's distressed. So they're going to buy it for pennies on the dollar, just like the used car dealer. And this is the thing, right? The, the business model for a lot of these name brand turnkey companies is they're buying a $100,000 property for a one twenty. Now, if you come to them and you say, eh, I don't know if I don't want this thing anymore, they're probably going to buy it for 75 mm-hmm. and then sell it again to some sucker at 110 to 120 again. Okay. If we have a bad experience with a tenant and want to exit, we change property managers instead of selling it? That can possibly be a solution. I guess you got to figure out what the problem is, right? Is it your PM or is it just a tenant? Or maybe that property isn't very good. And this is where you have to figure things out because everybody's going to be blaming each other. So for example, the properties manager is going to say, well, the turnkey company sucked because they didn't fix all this stuff or they're going to blame the tenant. You have a horrible tenant. The tenant's going to be blaming the property manager and that the property sucks and it's all broken. It's just a constant 
finger pointing game. So it's your job. And you got three employees that are dysfunctional. You know, they can complain to you as the boss. For all you guys out there that are like managers of people, it's just like the childish stuff you have to deal with. Totally. You think that it's going to be like a grown up adult, and once the kid graduates and goes off to college, no more problems. But maybe there are still some problems. Like when we sell it on MLS, should we target retail or like investors, like bigger pockets investors? Or would you recommend for sale by owner? I would sell it. If the tenant moves out, then what I would do is fix it up retail. You might have to spend ten to $20,000 and then sell that thing to a local broker to sell to some retail owner-occupied buyer. Hopefully is thrilled with the motion to buy it and will overpay for what it really is. If you want to get rid of it, what I would do is I would list it with a lot of discount brokers that will sell it with a tenant in place to a turnkey buyer. Um, if you guys need a recommendation, you guys can shoot me an email. I can connect you with my guy who does that. It's kind of like a boat. You're happy when you get it and you're even happier when you unload a turnkey rental property. If you're an accredited investor, right? For those of you guys out there who are under half a million dollars net worth, keep buying rentals. Always have to put it in because people cannot make that difference. Understood. And would you ever recommend owner financing? Never. never. It, it's like a unicorn. It never happens. These guys, and don't even fall for this stuff. The tenant's like, oh, I love the property. I want to live there. Can we work out some deal? Uh, lease option, owner finance. There's a reason why these guys are living in class B and C rentals. Their credit report is probably shot. They don't follow through with things. This is, it's not going to happen, guys. Just stop wasting your time and just sell it retail or to a discount broker it's just it's like borrowing money lending money to your like your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law you're just not going to get it back it's just not going to happen i think that's f right would you recommend selling to family oh no <laughs> heavens no and the the problem is like you might be in good faith like selling the property like i wouldn't i've done it in the past where i sell properties to people i know and i'm always hey man i'm just being honest here like i i fix things up as they needed but if something should break i'm sorry that's just the risk you take on so you need to have that discussion to me it's not worth it and then would the year of the house be built into the key decision to exit strategy not really houses it's not like commercial assets where there's a definitive class A, B, and C type of thing with ages where apartments in the 1970s are more like the class B minus type level up or class A is getting into the 1980s, 1990s. Houses, there's no age on the date for the most part. The bad side of that is you can sink an infinite amount of money into a house too in terms of repairs and upgrades, etc. But any other Questions, good question. Those were all I had as I went through the course because it was so detailed and I guess answered most of my questions already. So thank you. We'll throw this into the remote investor e-course for folks. Thanks, Marianne. This website offers very general information concerning real estate for investment purposes. Every investor situation is unique. Always seek the services of licensed third-party appraisers and inspectors to verify the value and condition of any property you intend to purchase. Use the services of professional title and escrow companies and licensed tax, investment, and or legal advisor before relying on any information contained herein. Information is not guaranteed as in every investment there is risk. The content found here is just my opinion and things change and I reserve the right to change my mind. Above all else, do your own analysis and think for yourself because in the end, you are the only person who is going to look out for your best interests.